What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'm working on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sister's. Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. And that novel was Frozen too. Good guess, but no. Tracy Lutz and Saoirse Ronan in that clip from Greta Gerwig's Little Women, which comes to theaters on Christmas Day. We've seen it, though, and we've got a review. Plus, we'll share some thoughts on Ryan Johnson's Knives Out and Tom Hanks in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. That and more. Hello, neighbor. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We come back from Thanksgiving, Josh, and bam, it's December. December's here. Yeah, we only have a couple weeks before we bring our friends into the studio to record our best of the year roundtable. We are excited to have back once again for like his 27th consecutive year, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. He's been doing it since before the show existed. Correct. And Tasha Robinson from the Next Picture Show podcast and TheVerge.com. She hasn't been a regular guest for quite as long as Michael, but we are gearing up to talk with them about our best films of the year that is coming in a few weeks. We, of course, have been trying to use the holidays when we weren't spending time with family to do some catching up. And we were successful, saw some movies in the theater, Josh, including A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. We'll talk about that and more later in the show. First up, Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, and Greta. Intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. But you are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. Joe, would you like to dance with me? I can't because I scorched my dress. And Meg told me to keep still so no one would see it. I have an idea of how we can manage. Joe is a lost cause. So you are your family's hope now. I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person. I think the poets might disagree. In a movie filled with joyful moments, and a few sad ones, I think I was most moved during my second viewing of Greta Gerwig's Little Women by a relatively simple, fleeting shot. Marmy March, played by Laura Dern, has just suggested to her daughters, Saoirse Ronan's Joe, Florence Pugh's Amy, Emma Watson's Meg, and Eliza Scanlon's Beth, that they forsake the Christmas morning feast that's been prepared for them, taking it instead to a poor mother nearby to feed her famished children. As the givers arrive at the doorway of the ramshackle home, the camera drifts gracefully from the back of the line of March girls to the front, savoring each smile and playful giggle. It's a throwaway moment, or could have been, that Gerwig and DP Yorick Lasso transform into a sublime expression of unity and individuality. The same perhaps could be said for the film as a whole, written by Gerwig, based, of course, on Louisa May Alcott's classic novel originally published in two parts in the late 1860s. I've never read Little Women, but it's fair to assume Gerwig's rendering isn't a case of alteration so much as it is understanding the most poignant, efficient way to translate what will surely become a treasured family memory from the page to the screen, which doesn't mean Gerwig isn't capable of or bold enough for a little invention. 
Alcott's coming-of-age tale that follows Joe's journey from aspiring writer, or more appropriately, non-professional writer, growing up with her sisters in New England, to professional writer and governess in New York, unfolds linearly. Gerwig jumps back and forth in time, a choice that effectively spoils what surely was a major plot revelation, and disappointment, I'm guessing, for Alcott's readers. Joe's refusal to marry her neighbor and best friend, Lori, portrayed here by Ronan's ladybird love interest, Timothy Chalamet. Gerwig informs us of Joe's denial and Lori's heartbreak within the first 10 minutes or so of the movie. Josh, as I said, I don't know the book, but that didn't stop me from scribbling something absurd in my notes after watching Little Women the first time. She actually improved the material, I wrote. In fairness, I intended that more as a provocation than pronouncement, and that's how I'm going to use it now. You have read the book. Was it recently? Josh or not? Yeah, a couple of times, but this summer I read it again. Overachiever. So what did you make of Gerwig's approach to time and of her audacious adaptation overall? Is it possible that Gerwig did, in fact, improve the material and produce the rare movie that's even better than the book? Well, I've read it a couple of times because I love it so much. So you are not going to get me to say that Greta Gerwig improved on Little Women. I mean, it's just I love it for its cozy domesticity and I love it for the way it gives us a heroine um, and respects her choice mm-hmm. to do something other than that, to pursue something other than that really pulls off a magnificent trick for any time, but let alone when the book was published. And Gerwig. So what I'm going to say is Gerwig has tweaked things as you described, in a way that has solved, let's just call it the Lori conundrum. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to call it the Lori problem. Um, but you're right. Your sense is right. From my conversations with people over the years about this book, including my own 14-year-old daughter who read it for the first time this summer, that's what you hit against is the book seems priming you for Joe and Lori's union. Yeah. And this is one of the brave things that Alcott does is say, no, I'm going to bring this story in another direction, somewhere you weren't anticipating. Mm. Um, But it feels a little bit, whenever I read it, it feels like sort of dropping something from the sky, another romance in the person of Professor Bear, slightly older man that Joe does meet in New York City in the final chapters. By chopping it up, we meet Bear, who is played by Louis Garrel. He's, I'd say, younger and maybe a little more handsome than some of the other screen than iterations. Than your imagination? <laughs> well, yeah. And really, that's that's probably the fair point than what readers have imagined in Professor Bear. The description, I think he is only in his 40s, I believe, in the book. But the way he's described, you picture someone much older. So we see this character sooner in This Little Women. As I said, he's he's much more charming. He can hold his own, I'm going to say it, against Chalamet in a yeah. very different way. Yeah, of course. And, and so we understand that these two are, as they would be in Joe's mind, equal options mm-hmm. for her life. And it's not – it doesn't feel as jarring when suddenly we go in another narrative direction. Um, so, again, it's a tweak – I'm not going to say it makes it better than the book, okay. but I appreciated it, and it did make that element of the book um, maybe a little bit easier to swallow for for those mm. who are experiencing the story for the first time and those readers who have loved it and always kind of felt that that was maybe a little bit of a hiccup. I think the more important point here is that this is one of many 
modern touches that Gerwig brings to this material that really distinguishes it for me. I also really like the, I think it's 1994 adaptation by Gillian Armstrong, which has a very strong cast in it as well. Winona I can't Ryder. compare. I haven't seen that either. Yeah, it's very, it's very good. I mean, this is such strong material that um, you really can't go wrong with it. But what Gerwig does that makes it distinct to me is um, make some modern choices that are not flashy in the way that you're going to you're going to say like is this anything even close to what I remember? Right. We're not giving us like Baz Luhrmann's, which I liked, Romeo and Juliet, but as a contrast to the way you could approach this material. But there are choices, distinct choices here that bring that modern sensibility. And the lead one is to go nonlinear. Maybe we can go into some more of those choices as we get into our conversation. Yeah, because I have a litany of them here in my notes, those modern choices that you speak of. But I do want to go back to that question I posed about time and how Gerwig handles it in the nonlinear structure. I'll say for the last time for the cheap seats, I can't obviously compare it directly to the book, but I can comment on the effect that the choice to reveal that marriage proposal earlier has, which is that I think it makes the culmination of the story Joe's awakening as a writer. Yes. And it's about finding her voice. And it does de-emphasize the romance. It de-emphasizes her role in relation to a man. What I would say is it brilliantly allows them to come to climax together exactly. at the same time, which yes. is a triumphant finale for it this It really film. is. And I was going to say, whether that is better than the book or not, I'm really glad Gerwig did it. And I think it's the right choice for this adaptation, which ends, and I won't say more, other than to say that it ends by cutting between two scenes that showcase her as an artist and as a teacher, independent completely, but also blessed with the love of family and friends and a man who it seems is also there. Right. And I think that's key. I think that is really key. It's not emphasized any more than that. And I like the choice, too, because I think like any film or book where you're told of the outcome ahead of time. It focuses your attention not on what, not on that kind of, hey, look what I just dropped on you, as you pointed out, and the surprise of it. It then becomes about how, and it becomes about why. And I think you pay even closer attention to the details and the nuances of the relationship between Lori and between Joe. And when the moment comes, when the moment comes that we finally see that question being posed— Rather than diminishing it in any way, I think it heightens it and I think it does build our anticipation for it. Now, it helps that the writing throughout the film, but in that scene is fantastic. The acting by both performers there is fantastic. The editing, the camera choices there in that confrontation scene, if you will, that proposal scene are really wonderful. As for Professor Bear, I did assume it solved one of Alcott's problems, and this was at least coming from your joke, your initial response, your first impression to the movie that you really had never understood the allure of Professor Bear before, and now you do. And my daughter said the same thing when I talked to Sophie about this and how I'd just seen the movie and how much I liked it, and I read her your comment. She's like, no way. No, Lori forever, right? I think that's probably how a lot of young readers, maybe old readers, are. And I'll also point out that in one meta nod, I think, Tracy Letts plays the publisher. Her father, Sir Ronan's father in Lady Bird, is the publisher in this movie, and he even verbalizes what every reader and every viewer to a lesser extent probably thinks. He says to her near the end of the film, now, why doesn't she end up with the other guy again? Yeah, totally. right? And, oh, and she totally has to explain it. So it is, it's readers. completely a nod 
to that. And yes, it helps that Louis Garrel is probably sexier than other incarnations of Professor Bear. But I do think, just based on what I know about the book, the cards are clearly stacked against him. We spend the whole story with her and Lori, and then the professor is just dropped in late by introducing him early. And we don't see him a ton. By introducing him early, though, and giving us meaningful scenes with him— we do recognize that they have a connection too. Sure. It does set the table in a way that makes it certainly a lot more palatable, if not preferable, that they are together at the end of the film. I also want to point out that I think it helps in another aspect of the story. Amy's story, which is the opposite of Joe's in a lot of ways. She kind of recognizes her lack of talent and desire to be an artist and has a desire instead to be a wife, but she then doesn't get relegated. And I think that speaks to one of the real triumphs of this script and of this movie is that every character, obviously all the March sisters, but even a lot of the supporting characters all get their scenes. They all get their moments to be flesh and blood, real people that we care about. I think about one minor one, but it stands out so vividly in my mind when Chris Cooper, who plays Mr. Lawrence, Lori's grandfather, the rich man, their rich neighbor, he is listening to Beth play the piano. And the camera pauses with him as he sits outside the door by himself by the door and has an emotional moment, a really strong reaction to that moment as it makes him think about his daughter and how she played the piano. So the fact that we get those touches and we get to spend that time with even those supporting characters, I think is really key here. So let's jump back to Amy because that gives us a chance to talk about the best performance in the movie. It is. And they're all strong. So this they're is all not, strong. They're all strong, but Florence, but Pugh, Florence Pugh, as Amy, she was just this year in Midsommar and also in Lady Macbeth. Um, amazing here and brings Amy to a life that I will also say feels differently than reads on the page. And part of that is just being able to visualize as these years passed and you meet Amy as the youngest of these sisters, um, it, it's difficult to envision her as the older woman she does become by the time she mm-hmm. ends up with Laurie and Laurie ends up with her. And Florence Pugh, obviously it's the same actress throughout, but manages through mannerisms she does. and her the way she carries herself and the way she speaks to let us see that passage of time, but she also gives Amy, um, she is so funny and she gives so Amy smart comic timing. And yes. I think there, there are some, the scenes Gerwig emphasizes that aspect of her demeanor, but also gives her her own yearning and her own desires yes. as she grows older and, and wants to be a painter mm-hmm. herself. Um, and there's just a sense of maturity to the character that registers here more strongly than it did on the page. Yeah. And so that goes a long way. And And here's the other thing that I think happens in concert with that when we talk about the Amy-Laurie relationship, how that works. Chalamet de-emphasizes – I mean, he's still a heartthrob. I'm not going to say that he isn't. But he de-emphasizes the Laurie dreaminess Mm. by playing up the comedy as well. The thing I loved about his performance, especially in the early scenes when he was roughhousing around with Joe, he's very Chaplin-esque in in the way Hmm. he just throws his body around. And it's almost as if he's in a silent comedy in the background, just kind of rolling around or bumping into people. And that gets carried into the older Laurie as well, even though he also starts to become a little stiffer and lose that playfulness. And you do get a sense that 
he's changed. And what that tells you is maybe this would not have been the best match no. because he's a different person yeah, now exactly. than he was when he and Joe were together. There's a contentedness to him that we don't see before that we also absolutely, you're right, see very subtly with Amy as well. And it is just in Florence Pugh's sort of mannerisms, her way of speaking. It's a little less manic. It's a little less charged. And it's funny because we're going to go from a comparison to Chaplin to the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I had in my notes that at least during that scene, and you're right overall, I like that comparison. He's very boyish. He isn't playing Laurie as if he is aware of the fact that he is supposed to be playing this heartthrob right. that so many throngs of readers He's one of the gang. With. He's he one is. of the group. And, and that really does come through. And yet when I was watching that scene, without overdoing it, the scene where he has his big moment with Joe the and proposal. professes his yeah. feelings for her— I felt like there was a Brando-esque quality to him as well. That's a different register. That it scene, is. he's he knows that's the heartthrob moment, and he plays it just right. Just right. And there's even a moment where he just has three words where he says, and I'll watch. That's absolutely devastating and also totally appropriate because we've seen him do that throughout the whole film. We have constantly seen how Gerwig will pause on Laurie watching and just kind of taking in the family and taking in Joe and taking in the world around him outside his window. So that was so fitting there. And yeah, you're right about Florence. Pew, her performance here as Amy, the timing and the dialogue and the way she handles it, because I do think she could be very easy to dislike in someone else's hands. She is someone who is at odds a lot with Joe, who is ultimately our heroine here in the film. And she comes off at times as shallow and a little bit too vain. But then you also have to really appreciate her honesty. How about the scene? It's got two great lines in it when Joe cuts her hair. And everyone gasps. And Amy says, you're one beauty. <laughs> like she just yeah. she's going to say it. She is brutally honest. She's really comfortable with who she is. And she's going to say that. And I think it's right at the end of that scene as just a little punchline. She also says, I would feel the same way, <laughs> you know, and she just acknowledges that. But she is so funny and she's so relatable, even when she's being mean as she actually is there. And she certainly and I'm talking about Gerwig here with Pew gives Amy as much of a spark and as much intelligence and as much agency and any other word you want to use, as much conflict as anyone else in the story. I've always known I would marry Rich. Why should I be ashamed of that? There's nothing to be ashamed of, as long as you love him. Well, I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person. I think the poets might disagree. Well, I'm not a poet. I'm just a woman. And as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money. Not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. Yeah, you know what Pew does, and this will bring us back to the modern touches, I think. Uh, there's a lot of period vernacular in the film, obviously. Mm -hmm. And somehow she particularly gives some of those words a very contemporary air. I don't know if she says this, but the one that sticks in my mind is capital, you know, which, which is used like an exclamation of like, that's awesome. Like yeah. some, someone would say. Joe maybe, likes that word, too. Yeah. and uh, who, But Amy will say these words and they sound like 
someone is using is shouting them in a YouTube video <laughs> rather than from, you know, a page in a book that's 150 years old or whatever. There's just a, something in the delivery where they can. And there's the balance, right, that this whole film has between um, things that are that are very, very old yet are given a contemporary air. Mm-hmm. But they feel cozy together and matched together. And that's just one of the modern touches. I think the other one I'd want to mention is um, when Joe and Lori go to the, I guess it's like a ball in a house and um, everyone else is dancing inside very formally. And that's just not their personalities, right? So they find themselves on the porch outside. They can still see everyone else. Yes. And they begin dancing. I would say, you know, 70% 70% ironically, as kids tend to do in sure. situations like that. They're and making it's borderline anachronistic, too. It's it a little is. bit of the favorite. When they see yeah, well, dancing, not right? quite that far, no, but a yeah, little bit. It's, it, there are touches of that. A- and yet it all fits because it's capturing their individual personalities and the parts of their personalities that pull them to each other mm-hmm. perfectly. And it's also something you could see kids doing outside of a high school dance today. No problem. And there's so much of that sort of stuff in this little women. I also love that scene because it kind of sums up one of the central themes of the film, which is this idea of being at odds with or in conflict with what society dictates, what a sense of decorum dictates and what's really in your heart and what you really personally want to express. And Every time they act a certain way as they walk past the window and then act completely differently and really truly express themselves when they're between windows, I think sums that idea up perfectly. And there really are so many more of these touches we could touch on. I want to go back to the structure and the way it goes in and out of time, because I think that really speaks to Gerwig's gifts as a filmmaker and as a visual storyteller. And there's... On one hand, the cleverness of it a lot, and there's also the way she uses it to kind of expose a harsh reality in the cut. The cleverness that really emerges is in moments like a conversation that Amy has with Meryl Streep, who plays their aunt, March. And we were talking about how good the performances are overall. They're so good that Meryl Streep's performance is probably my least favorite. And you might be right. And it's Meryl Streep. <laughs> and she's really good, okay? But I like everyone else's performance that much. But she's their Aunt March. She's the one telling them about how if they're going to get by in life as a woman, they need to either be rich or they need to marry well. And she, at one point, is explaining that to Amy in a scene and then dismisses her. And Amy walks out the door of that room. The very next scene is Amy then entering another room as she walks in. And has another conversation with Meryl Streep where we now see that maybe Amy didn't listen so closely to her advice. It's not by accident that we have her walk out of the scene, walk out of the past and then walk in to the present. I also love the touch where we see Joe having a conversation, the first conversation that we see her having with Professor Bear. She's standing by a fireplace and she's so lost in her own thought that her dress catches fire and he points that out to her. A few scenes later... It's that scene right before the dancing where she meets Lori and Lori says, would you like to dance with me? And she says, no, I scorched my dress mm-hmm. right now. She did in terms of how we're watching the story unfold. We already saw her with another man scorch her dress and now she can't go out in public. But of course, that scene actually happens much later in the future. So there are just wonderful, playful touches like that in the way the story is constructed visually, but also we see those cuts between a beach on one of the happiest days in their lives and the glow of that sun and the glow of the sand. 
and then that abrupt cut to the beach on a completely different day on a much sadder day yeah. where everything is so muted by comparison. And even one really sad scene that I won't get into the particulars of, but we see in one moment at one point in time, Joe come down the stairs and on the other end of that staircase is good news. And in the next scene, it's her coming down the staircase and it's exactly the same, except she's coming down to bad news. And we know it's bad news before she even for sure knows it's bad news only because the rhythm of it and the editing of it is different. It's not exactly the same, even though she's coming down the stairs exactly the same. Yeah, the way the movie slips in and out of its different time frames is incredibly elegant. And that shot, the one you mentioned of Joe and Beth on the beach with the wind blowing the sand out away from him, it's How a stunner. How about that sand? I mean, it's, it's I mean, a stunner. I don't know what the production designer did to get that some sand big, some to recede. Some big fan somewhere but, back there. But so. in the dialogue, too, they're talking about a tide. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a perfect a match. A tide rolling out match. as the sand goes yeah. towards the tide. It's really lovely. I mean, overall, this is going to have, I would say, that that cozy Christmas card aesthetic that you would expect. Again, it's that balance. Mm-hmm. It's the balance of, of the old and the fresh and giving us just enough of, of both so that it, it fits perfectly. Um, the production design, I think, is emphasizes that as well. And... Yeah, you'll get you'll get stunning shots like the one on the beach. Every what, just when you get too comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, and just when when you think this is starting to look a little too familiar from other costume dramas you've seen in the past mm-hmm. or novel adaptations, you'll get you'll get a little flitter of slow motion, or, or I yeah. should say a pause of slow motion in a way that isn't really emphasizing anything or over enunciating the moment, mm-hmm. but just kind of taking us out of the period element of it. And reminding us that this story matters now today. And then we move on um, back into the period where we want to be anyway. I think I could probably talk at least another 15 to 20 minutes about this film, Josh. But I do want to save some of my material for our top 10 films of the year show. I will close with this. I had a chance on that second viewing to watch it with my daughter, Sophie, who I mentioned was a fan of the book and really eager to watch this movie, I think part of it was appropriate to everything we have said before. Part of it, a big part of it, was Timothy Chalamet, who, in the proper parlance of our time, referred to him as a snack. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, But, but is she with me on Professor Bear, though, or is she still? She's still, her heart is fully with, not Lori, with Chalamet. Yeah, so and I guess Chalamet could have been Professor Bear, and she probably still okay. would have aligned fair herself. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's and, how much. And if you're Sophie's age, you know that's that's yes. where your but, eyes should but be. But no, anyway. she definitely understands. I think okay. even if her heart isn't fully in it, she Got understands it. where you're going with that. But she pointed out something that I thought was great, and I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest maybe it was actually a Greta Gerwig nod because we saw in Lady Bird references to other films and other elements of pop culture that were important to her. The Breakfast Club is a key film to Greta Gerwig. And the moment where we're introduced to Laurie, he is walking past a carriage that's carrying Meryl Streep and Florence Pugh. And he walks by. And not only the way he's walking, but the way he's dressed, he's wearing sort of a Tweedish, almost trench coat, and he's got a red scarf around his (laughs) neck. And Sophie says he looks just like Bender. Is yeah, I see. I can see that. And isn't it also another moment of slow motion? I think it. I think that is with him. You're right. Just ever so slightly when he kind of does that turn. So yeah, that could be a nod for sure. We will stop there with Little Women, which doesn't come out until Christmas Day. But as you can tell, 
I can't wait for people to see it. And it sounds like Josh is pretty enthusiastic as well. We would love to hear your thoughts about it. When that time does come, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. There's probably a good chance we have more positive thoughts ahead as we dig into Knives Out and It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Stay with us. I met two angels, but they were in disguise. Took one look to realize. Tell them anything and they will sympathize. These arms hold me tight. Old fears help to ease them in my mind. Say that they will giantize Well, me, how'd I get this hallelujah Hallelujah Laughing together like our thoughts are harmonized Been that way since 95 I have a bad feeling about this. I don't sense anything. It's not about the mission master, it's something elsewhere. From the opening of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, the, according to what it says in front of me, the iconic opening of The Phantom Menace, that's Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor. What's with the skepticism? I don't recall any such skepticism when it came to our other nine from 99 films Mm. that we've been reviewing all year long. Are you going into this with the right attitude, Adam? Well, I'm going into it knowing that it's the only film of the nine that I dislike strongly when I saw it. Oh, no. It's the only one. And that's all I have to go on because I have not watched it in the subsequent 20 years. Josh, we'll see if I feel guilty about that on this revisit. The Phantom Menace is the final film in our year-long nine from 99 series. Nine films that are not necessarily the best, though I think we did a pretty good job of picking very good films from the great movie year, 1999. The choice to revisit Phantom Menace, obviously, I think obvious in terms of its cultural and critical status. Mm -hmm. Josh, not really so much about it being a great movie from 99 to talk about, but it felt like an essential movie from 99 to talk about, partly because of the release of the new Star Wars in a few weeks, and also because I thought it probably, hopefully, would produce a good argument. And because it was on my top 10 films of 1999 list. That's really why we're talking about it. I've actually just put that completely out of my memory. I'm just pretending that's (laughs) not the case. history, Adam. (laughs) Next week on the show, we will get to a review of The Phantom Menace, and we will have our nine from 99 awards. So kind of like we do with our marathons, we're going to look back at these nine films, not all the films from 1999, but just these nine that are really fresh in our mind. And we're going to share which one is our favorite, which performances are our favorite, maybe what the biggest surprises were. If you have any category suggestions for that, if you have any picks that you want to make sure we consider, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You could send us an audio file as well to that address or leave a voicemail, 312-264-0744. And more information about that 9 from 99 series, plus all the past reviews, can be found at filmspotting.net slash 9 from 99. Now, my number one film of 1999 in that top 10 list is in this mix. So oh. so we'll see if it's going to stay in that spot. There has been some shifting in the 20 years, mm. and especially after we've revisited a number of these titles to that original top 10 list. Ooh, but that number one, uh, it's got a good chance of sticking there. Okay. Back in, I think, 2000, 
seven, or eight, a different co-host sitting across from you, along with myself, shared our favorite films of 99 as part of our year-by-year countdown, which we still do, though maybe with a little less frequency. So I'd already considered the year 99, and my number one at that time was Three Kings. Oh, which we haven't done. Which we didn't do, and that's kind of why I'm glad that we're not doing what we originally planned to do, which was actually a top 10 of 99, considering these nine films, some of which definitely are going to be in contention for my favorite films, my top five or 10 from that year, along with films like Three Kings I haven't seen since 99. I don't really know if it's fair to that film to compare it to these ones that are so vivid now in my mind. It'd be hard for me, for example, to put it ahead of a movie like being John Malkovich or Eyes Wide Shut just because of the recency bias. Yeah, a lot of recency bias at work there. I get it. We also wanted to mention, as we usually do for our Chicago area listeners, that we often have advanced screening or run of engagement passes to give away. That's filmspotting.net slash events. By the time you hear this, there may be some movie passes available. We recently gave away Passes to Sam Mendes 1917, also Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell, and a new one coming out this weekend, The Two Popes. Again, that's filmspotting.net slash events. I wanted to squeeze in very quickly one more Golden Brick nomination. We have a couple weeks left, I think, to squeeze Mm -hmm. in some of these. And one I was able to catch as part of my year-end catch-up viewing was Black Mother. This is a documentary that I first heard about back in February, I think. It was playing in Seattle when I was out that way, and I meant to catch it, just couldn't fit it in, but finally did this week. And it's really something. The filmmaker here is an American director, Kalik Ala, and he has family in Jamaica. So he went to the island and basically came back with this portrait collage. He interviewed uh, a wide swath of the island's residents with a really unique approach. And here's why it's really good for a Golden Brick nominee. His camera floats before the subjects, and sometimes they'll look in the camera or they'll look away, very much a portrait mode. But we don't hear their – they don't speak to the camera, basically. We hear their words, but it's in voiceover. And sometimes these are prayers they're offering or sometimes they're songs that they're singing or even other people we've met earlier. We hear their words or songs over someone else's face. And so there's a distancing effect here. There's a disembodied nature to it. But as it goes on, you realize that – These people are almost pushing past the self-consciousness they might have and finding a confidence by the fact that this camera wants to see them. It's like they're soaking up the power of being seen. Um, And there's something incredibly moving about that, even though this isn't a documentary that follows any sort of narrative or we get to know any of these people intimately or their exact story. In the voiceover, we learn a little bit about religion on the island, a a lot about black history in the Caribbean. Um, We learn about uh, marijuana farming and other things, but it's not in a traditional narrative. So it's an incredibly unique experience. A lot of formal ingenuity here. There are different film formats that Allah uses as well. So this is one that I just wanted to throw in the golden brick mix and bring to people's attention right now is a good time to try to catch up with it, actually, because it is available to rent on demand at grasshopperfilm.com. And the DVD will also be available on December 10. So that's Black Mother. We'll 
throw it in with the others. Yeah, thanks so much for adding yet another film I now need to fit in before the end of the year. Sorry. We will list more information about Black Mother along with all of our current Golden Brick contenders. We haven't narrowed it down to the finalists yet, but we do have a list of all the potential nominees over at filmspotting.net slash bricks. A quick plug for our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. It's part one of their Breaking Up is Hard to Do pairing. Noah Baumbach's new marriage story up against 1979's Kramer versus Kramer, starring Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman. Every two weeks, they give you a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic. And you can hear new episodes of The Next Picture Show every Tuesday at midnight, wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. Listen, Frank. Things have gotten out of hand with our friend again. And some people are having serious problems with him. And uh, it's at a point where you're going to have to talk to him and tell him it's what it is. One of the memorable lines there in Martin Scorsese's memorable, The Irishman, Robert De Niro with Joe Pesci. Scorsese's film, we're going to say it, and it's not too bold a claim, is one of the best films of the year. But is it the best? That is for you, the Film Spotting listener, to decide. We have a new poll question over at filmspotting.net. We're asking you simply, as we usually do at this time of year, what is the best film of 2019? Yes, there is another month to the year. You guys all have a lot to see, too. But you know what? It's what it is. People are going to be using that a lot, aren't they? It's what it is. I like it. We got to know now. We typically give about eight to 10 choices when we do this year-end poll, but we've narrowed it down. We're going to simplify it. Just three this year. The Irishman, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Of course, we will give you the option of other, but I feel like this is, and as some top 10 lists are starting to trickle out from various critics, I feel like this is a good encapsulation of where things are probably going to fall. Me too. And I'll put you on the spot just a little bit, even though I'm positive I know the answer. As of right now, Mm -hmm. do you have even a rough top 10 sketched out? Oh, yeah. Okay. For sure. I do as well. Does your current number one come from that list or would you be voting other? Uh, Potentially. Okay. I have. You said you had a top 10 list. You can't say potentially. No, but I have have tiers on that list. And the number one slot is wide open. Okay. Because there are a handful of titles I still need to see for the first time. But also because I have a couple I need to revisit. And hopefully that will solidify hmm. a first place. I will say that one of those titles in contention for the top slot is on this list. Okay, me too. Right now, if the year was ending, someone pinned me down, I had to say what my favorite film of the year was. It's one of those three. But Interesting. there is still a lot to see. And we will see how everything shakes out, including in this poll question, in early voting, maybe a little bit of a surprise when you're considering the competition here is Tarantino. And Martin Scorsese, Parasite with a pretty healthy lead over Tarantino, Irishman in third. I don't think either of us would have dared to predict that at the beginning of the year. No. No. Other was the clear winner last year. This year, Parasite and Once Upon a Time seem to be the consensus favorites of listeners, at least so far. Again, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. We will share your results along with your comments during our year-end best of shows at the end of this month. All right, let's play some Massacre Theater. It's the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Where is it? How did you get here? Where is it? I want it. 
came back for the book? Why? My father didn't want it incinerated. Is that what you think of me? I believe in the Grail, not the Svastika. You stood up to be countered with the enemy of everything that the Grail stands for. Who gives a damn what you think? You do! All I have to do is squeeze. All I have to do is scream. That was Allison Duty and Harrison Ford in 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It was written by Jeffrey Bohm, based on a story by George Lucas and Menno Mace, directed, of course, by Steven Spielberg. That massacre, part of a show a few weeks back when we did one of our 9 from 99 reviews, it was Magnolia. And we shared thoughts on a few other recent releases, including Jojo Rabbit. That might give you an idea of one connection. Let's see if listeners had a few others. Well, Tony Morfitt points out, he's from North Liberty, Iowa, that the obvious connection is to Jojo Rabbit, another movie with Nazis, including Adolf Hitler as comic relief. Also connected to Magnolia as both movies have an emotional arc focused on a strained father-son relationship. Matt Watkins, he's from Chico, California, noted that The Last Crusade is the story of a son stepping out of the shadow of his father and facing down the repercussions of patriarchal choices, as we also see in Magnolia, and that both Jojo and The Last Crusade take place in Nazi-occupied Europe during World War II. But also, Matt says, Paul Thomas Anderson has worked several times now with Joaquin Phoenix, younger brother of the late River Phoenix, who portrayed young Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. Trey Chambers in Denver, just real quick, also pointed out that in Magnolia, you have Tom Cruise's Frank T.J. Mackey, who changed his name, just like Indy changed his name to reduce their connection to their fathers. Deep cut. Here's Nick Newbold from Salt Lake City, Utah. Also reviewed briefly on the show was The Report with Adam Driver. Driver's Kylo Ren, a.k.a. Ben Solo, is the son of Last Crusade star Harrison Ford's Han Solo. Jesse Marsh in Rumford, Rhode Island, writes in one other tangential tie-in. The Indiana Jones trilogy also is connected to Magnolia via Alfred Molina, who had his film debut as the ill-fated guide in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Throw Me the Idol, I Throw You the Whip, and also had parts in two PTA films, including Boogie Nights, who could forget his performance as the coked-out drug dealer in the famed Sister Christian scene, as well as the aforementioned Magnolia. He does crop up. I remember being surprised to see Alfred Molina as quiz kid Donnie Smith's boss Uh, in Magnolia. That throw me the idol line, not nearly sweaty enough, Adam. Sorry. Jesse in Durham, North Carolina here. Good call on subbing the word frog for grail. There are so many biblical references in Magnolia, and there's a link there between frogs, the coolest of the seven plagues. (laughs) Jesse's got them ranked by coolness. Okay. And the holy grail. Also, later in the scene, you massacred, Indy gets swept up in the crowd and eventually meets up with the Fuhrer himself, later portrayed by Taika Waititi and Jojo Rabbit, which you also reviewed in this episode. As pedestrian as it may be, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, ouch, was the first movie that made me fall in love truly madly and deeply with the medium. And when I saw it at the tender age of eight, I knew I wanted to be an actor or work in film. How perfect that it was featured in Massacre Theater on the greatest film podcast. Keep up the good work. Guys. I don't think he's saying the movie's pedestrian, but I maybe the choice is a little cliche. Okay, okay. That could be. Amber Knoll in Columbus, Ohio says, thanks for giving a nostalgia inducing rendition of the Nazi book burning scene from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. In fact, when Josh said this was someone he often pretended to be as a child, he did give it away. I immediately had a feeling it would be Harrison Ford. When I was a kid, 
I pretended to be Indiana Jones, too. Not as common for a little girl to ask for a Stetson hat and a bullwhip for Christmas, I will tell you. (laughs) There was a kindred spirit vibe there that I recognized even before you played the scene. Thanks for taking me down memory lane. That's fantastic, Amber. Another comment here from Andrew Howell in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Josh's gravelly voice was more than serviceable. He could likely have done a better job than Ford himself in his movies of 1998 and 1999, Six Days, Seven Nights, and Random Hearts. As for Adam, you ruined Elsa. Ruined. Shame on you, sir. Shame. I may have, but Chris Moody in Tetbury, England, disagrees, or at least is just really nice compared to Andrew. He says, it was Adam's sensitive performance that gave this away almost immediately. Your portrayal of Elsa Schneider was spot on. Do you talk in your sleep as well? Very nice, I'll never tell, Chris. The only way to solve this for Andrew, he's going to have to dub your voice performance Uh over his copy of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade of that scene. See how he feels about it. Troubling. Reach in to the pretty brimming, unsurprisingly, film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Ben Collar from East Brunswick, New Jersey. Congratulations, Ben. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. We move on now to this week's Massacre Theater. This is a film we're going to tell you in advance is little seen compared to something like The Last Crusade. But there are so many connections to this week's show, we just couldn't resist. We'll tell you that it's a relatively recent film. It's a film that did get talked about on the show. Don't remember if it got a full review, though I think it might have, but definitely some moments from it were talked about on a rap party. I think it was possibly the top 10 show. Yeah. I'm going to guess this might have been a Michael Phillips top 10 lister. Okay. If you have seen it, we guarantee you'll get it immediately. Yes. The only other note, not that it will be obvious to most people listening is that we did combine two roles down into one. So I've actually got the easier part. I'm playing two different people who sound pretty much the same. Josh, you're our workhorse here. You're our star. You're going to take on this role. And there's no pressure. Our producer, Sam, who picked this scene, did say something earlier today to us like, you have to really go for it. This scene is the greatest, funniest scene of all time or something. Basically, he... So don't ruin it. He'd been laughing at this scene the last five days straight. Yeah. I feel terrible because this is gold that should not be touched. It's gold. Let's trash it. Okay. You're going to start it off. I'm going to give you the action. I know you're not ready, but are you ready? Let's do it. And action. This reminded me of many such uh, accounts one learns in childhood. Perhaps the most significant in forming one's principles is that of the old prophet who came down from the mount with tablets bearing the Twelve Commandments, which our Lord has taught us to obey without fail. Twelve Commandments? Hmm. Excuse me, but uh, I believe there were only ten. Really? Only ten must be obeyed? Excellent. Ah, well then, which, which two to take off? Perhaps the one about the Sabbath. I prefer to hunt. Well. After that, it becomes tricky. Many of the thou shalt nots don't murder, uh, don't covet thy neighbor's house or wife. One simply wouldn't do anyway. Ha! Because they are wrong. And scene. (laughs) A little too trippingly on the tongue. You didn't (sighs) savor it. Yeah. You didn't quite savor it the way this performer does. But you know what? You got me with the laugh. Once once I got on that tightrope, I just had to keep going forward. You got me with the laugh. You, sir, very impressed. Because you were doing two characters. I played two roles. Two different voices. I felt like I had to step up. 
the Based range. On what you were giving the range yeah. I've just witnessed oh, I is know. shocking. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, December 17th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. I'm Detective Lieutenant Elliot, and this is Trooper Wagner. We just want to ask a few questions. We understand the night of his demise, the family had gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. How was it? The party? Pre my dad's death? Oh, it was great. Jamie Lee Curtis and Lakeith Stanfield in the trailer for Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, which opened Thanksgiving weekend. A lot of people went to see it, judging by the box office. I know I was there in the theater with Debbie and we took my daughter B2. We all had a great time with it. It's an Agatha Christie style whodunit, which also stars Tony Collette, Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Michael Shannon, I'm not done yet, Don Johnson, and Christopher Plummer. Ryan Johnson, well known to us as the namesake for our Golden Brick Award for his great debut film, Brick. He's also, of course, some people know him as the writer, director of The Last Jedi. Adam, I would say that, though this is a fun whodunit, the moral burden of wealth really weighs heavily on this film. For sure. Uh, According to the movie's understanding of 2019 America, there is a larger culprit on the loose than the specific killer here, and that culprit is privilege and greed. So what I'd like to know, I've heard a lot of people talking about how much fun they had with mm-hmm. this movie. And it's incredibly fun. It's dexterously cunning, immensely entertaining. Did you have more fun with the plot or the politics? Hmm. Because the latter is sort of what surprised me more, even though I had no idea where this movie was going plot-wise. Either. Yeah, I'm with you. It definitely was a big surprise to me. I think there is a balance of it. But I think maybe I did, in the end, have the most fun with the political commentary that we get in this film. And maybe if at some point, either this week or next, we get into a little bit of spoiler talk, I would love to talk about the final shot of this film, which is among the best shots of the year. It's a shot that set it perfectly by the script, and it expresses visually a titanic shift that has taken place. And honestly, it's just as thrilling a moment as I had in the theater all year, but it gets to the heart of what we're discussing. And you may recall, this was a month or two ago, I posted in our film spotting Slack for you and Sam a comment that I heard from Ryan Johnson on another podcast that really surprised me. And it was an interview with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the star of Ryan's film Brick, and of course also Looper. He's got a new podcast called Creative Processing with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Ryan was on the first episode. The first episode, appropriately, was all about originality and imitation, because Ryan has always worked within genres. And at one point in the interview, and actually in this moment, they're talking about Looper, and Ryan says, you have to be kind of angry about something to write a script, I think. If the thing you're angry about is not something you identify in yourself— I'm always wary of that. So he kind of goes on to say that when he's writing a film and if it has villains in it, he's thinking that it's good to always start from a place where you're not identifying with the good guy, but you're actually identifying with the bad guy, which doesn't mean, obviously, that you're supporting the bad guy, that you agree with the bad guy, that you want others to agree with the bad guy. But I think Ryan's saying there that you're not really doing the work of an artist if you're not self-aware and if you aren't willing to be 
harshly introspective and consider all your faults and perhaps reckon with them in a film. And it was just such a striking answer for a lot of reasons, one of them being, too, that if you have ever met Ryan Johnson or even if you haven't, if you just know his kind of persona publicly and you've heard him on shows like this or others, you know that he seems utterly incapable of anger, even an ounce of anger. So it really was kind of a profound statement coming from him. And again, he wasn't talking about Knives Out. But now having seen Knives Out, I realize he absolutely could have been because there are two feelings that my sense is clearly coalesced together for this film. One is Ryan's appreciation of genre, especially the whodunit, and the need to express his frustration with the state of things in America. There is political context that the movie directly draws on. There is a mention of our president, although not by name. There's a mention of kids being kept in cages. There's talk of keeping immigrants like the main character in the film, Marta, who is played by Ana de Armas, and she's the caretaker, the nurse for the patriarch who is killed. There's a sense that she should at least stay in her place. And yet saying all of that, I feel like what he's really critiquing is a general lack of compassion, a lack of humanity that shouldn't be political at all, but sadly really is. And so I'm saying all this because I think what really did strike me about Knives Out is it's the first time maybe we've seen Ryan take external anger and process it on screen via just internal anger, which I think is interesting. But I also don't think we can discount the internal anger part completely. And maybe at some point, if we talk to Ryan, we can get into this a little bit. But I feel like maybe he's acknowledging some very small part of himself, of ourselves, that understands the Thromby family and their sense of entitlement and their sense of privilege and how nice it is to have nice things and not have to want for anything. But also maybe it comes from Ryan, again, purely speculating here, but maybe it's a sense of someone feeling like they're not doing enough. As we all bemoan these things we see occurring around us, I think we all feel a little bit paralyzed and wonder, should I be doing more? Instead of sitting here on a podcast right now talking about movies or radio shows, should I be out there trying to make some kind of change? And he's making movies. Maybe he feels like he's not doing enough either. And I think the brilliance of Knives Out is that balance of pure entertainment that delivers completely on its mystery premise with that element of critique. It's a fun puzzle, as you said, with humor and twists and turns, but it also sneakily puts every single viewer in Marta's shoes. And I can't think of anything more subversive than that. Yeah, you're describing it as a challenge for the audience, and that's why it's doubly encouraging for me that it did so well over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend that audiences are receiving it both as an entertainment and at this other level that that you're describing. And hopefully it'll continue to reach more audiences that way. You're so right about this thing being, you know, just crackerjack put together. And half of the fun is to realize how in control um, Ryan Johnson mm -hmm. is of this story. The only way, and I, I, this is how I describe my review and I have to read it because I can't get this right, but this plays like an unreliable narrator's recollection of a drunken friend's story that they heard secondhand. Hmm. But the trick is that's a compliment because all of those levels are purposeful and we're getting each variation of the, that person's story exactly as we need to, to be mystified and yet still entertained. So the amount of control going on in this film, here's an example. As the suspects start recounting the party, they've all gathered yeah. for uh, this patriarch's 85th birthday party, we get a shot of 
a cake being put down before him with lit candles. Yeah. And depending on who is telling the story, the shot has them in yes. focus. They're telling the story of the night from their perspective from their point of view. to so Daniel Craig. In. So just a little, you know, a little way of putting us in their heads. And another example is that we get a flashback in this movie, an extended flashback in the midst of a coin toss. Mm-hmm. So it's up in the air and we go off in a totally different direction um, exactly when we need to. So so there's deception and there's misperception that's built into, into the movie's very form mm-hmm. um, that's just a thrill to watch click into place. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I noted that scene as well because they're all talking to the detective and it makes sense that at that point they may know that they are – potential suspects. They certainly want to paint themselves in a positive light. So when they're telling the story of the night, of course, they're going to put themselves in the position where they're being adoring with their father. And it's not at all what really happened. But I also think it makes sense because it's not just that they're lying and Ryan is kind of showing us that they're lying by cutting to those scenes. We know that they've all said that same thing, so it can't be real. I think it speaks overall to a sense of probably denial on their part in their recollection of the night. That's how they behaved. They've always been that adoring of their father. That's who they think they are. And I think that the film, you're right, how much it's about misperception. They think they're good people. Or And the movie shows what they really are. I think it's another level. They think that's how they deserve to be thought of as. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now my mind's blown. Yes, I, I know what you're getting at, and I think it's true. I also would even go back to the opening shot of the film. Do you remember the very opening of this film? Isn't it yeah. sort of in slow motion? The dogs. And the dogs running. Yeah, across and of the course, lawn of the estate. When you see these dogs running across the lawn of the estate in slow motion, and that's the credit sequence, I think, essentially, or the first thing right after it, you're watching it going, okay, that's a choice. What is the <laughs> point of that? But I do think maybe it gets at this idea of what you see isn't always what you think it is because – We see throughout the film that depending on who the dogs are encountering, Mm -hmm. they are either hostile and mean or they're incredibly loving. And when they're running in slow motion with no sound like that, we as viewers are going, okay, are these dogs attacking someone? What, What are these dogs? And what direction are they coming? They're coming, They're coming towards the camera. Exactly. From and the so house. that that feeds back to your idea of this movie being a challenge. Yeah. They're coming for us. They are. And there are some great performances in this film. Obviously, the whole cast is really strong, but I do think De Armas in particular stands out because she is playing someone in Marta who does have to have an abiding sense of goodness and innocence, but that could also be played as naivete. And I don't think she plays that at all. And I do think we have to see her then as not just this kind of saintly figure. We have to see her as a flesh and blood person, not just some angel. And I do think there has to be just a little bit of a shred of doubt about her. We think we know exactly who she is. And I don't think the movie really challenges that notion. But it has to at least introduce the idea that maybe she's not as pure and innocent as she purports to be. And the fact that there's just even enough of that hint in her performance, I think is important. Well, it's definitely the most layered performance. And, and yeah. that's, you know, by virtue of the construction here, The every other character gets, gets less time except for maybe Daniel Craig's private investigator. But one thing she has to do, the trick she has to pull that she completely manages to pull off is she has to project the fact that she has as much, if not more, intelligence than anyone else who's acting like she doesn't. Um, But at the same time, she has to make it clear that she's legitimately at a loss in this elite world. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a combination of being a step ahead of them 
potentially a step ahead of them while still being a step behind in other ways because of the the class issues mm-hmm. at play in the film. And I think she manages that wonderfully. It's a great performance. And the others mostly just have, you know, it's one of these films where you just, if you're having half as much fun in your seat in the theater as the actors probably were mm-hmm. doing these scenes, yeah, for you're, sure. you're going to be having a great time. And, and they have to, uh, this family, they have to project malevolence, disingenuousness, um, malice, all, and, and, you know, and then get really dark as things start to turn and they feel more threatened and everyone in the cast is just great at Chris Evans Chris maybe. Evans um, another standout another standout only again because of the construction he's yeah. kind of teased at the beginning and then he finally comes in for a big scene and yes. it's, a, it's it's a fantastically funny scene with great lines and yeah Captain America can't get enough Captain America he's really good in it I did want to ask you as we're talking about the politics and how overall that seemed to be a real strength of the film what did you make of the fact that he made it timely, something I didn't necessarily expect from this film in terms of there being at least one conversation kind of right in the middle of this movie where the politics of the family, well, it seemed appropriate for Thanksgiving, maybe, that within this family, <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a squabble about yeah, a president yes. and certain decisions that are being made, just like it's probably playing out at a lot of dinner tables around the country. We see different shades of perspectives and politics within that family. But instead of just making this sort of a political allegory, which Ryan yeah. Johnson could have, yeah. he decides to make it blatant. I'm going to say you use the word subversive. and. Yeah. Although overall, as I said, it surprised me that it got this political and I appreciated that about it. And I'm certainly on the the side of the movie's politics. So it's not that. But I think if he had pulled back on some of those, particularly that scene you're talking about, the family discussion scene, where it it almost does get to a point like we're going to hit this hot topic, we're going to hit this hot topic, or we're going to hit this hot topic. I think if you let that bubble under the surface a little more – then you're getting subversive. It, it It's still challenging as is. So your description is apt. And I agree mm-hmm. with that. And I think that's definitely to the movie's credit. But I think pulling back on the reins a little bit and again, letting that simmer and, and letting it sort of sink in underneath and not maybe put certain audience members on edge quite so directly hmm. sometimes is a little more effective. Now, I'm more than happy to sit back and watch the fireworks sure. <laughs> if, yeah. if that's what happens with the film. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's a, yeah. obviously it's a choice of modulation that, that the movie makes. Well, but it makes it, and we're dancing around things a little bit, in terms of understanding what side the filmmaker may or may not be on, I don't think we really know that for sure until the end of the film. I think there are probably a lot of people in the theater who maybe even share the perspective of some of the characters like Don Johnson oh, absolutely. Watching, who watching the scene felt like, oh, I like that he's my speaking, voice is being heard. He's speaking, he's speaking, for, speaking me. for me. The movie isn't necessarily critiquing him here, but I think it's important within the context of the entire film that that scene does play out the way it does because it does establish hypocrisy and not just of the characters with that particular well, point of view. There's a hip, the, the most potently hypocritical character and again we're dancing around mm-hmm. we don't want to get into spoilers but is someone who and and this speaks you know to the subversive point i think someone who is on the film's political side or who claims to be yes well yes to a point yeah um i i, I think we're thinking no, about the same until, when something of hers is threatened until yeah and is let's just say ostensibly an ally 
until personal cost. That's comes exactly into play. right. And th- those are th- that's to me that's like a, a subversive needle. Yes. That that but I think is needed, like where the movie's at its. Best. I think we needed to know first where his so-called politics lie, where his so-called politics were, or how he showed himself to the world, and then how he shows himself when it really matters, and when you recognize that they might be coming for the stuff. That is his. So in that scene, we have all the people who are talking about how, you know, real Americans pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they shouldn't want any handouts and all that stuff. Well, then when it comes time to divide up the old man's money, they seem to love the idea of them getting something that they didn't earn at all. They feel like they're entitled to a share of it. Yeah. Right. But, but so we're there's hypocrisy there. I know. Two different then, characters. Right. But yeah. this is what I love. We see that hypocrisy of that side. We see the other side as well. We see the hypocrisy of those who are the more liberal ones yes. in the argument who decry yeah. the other's worldview right up until it affects mm-hmm. them. And once yeah. it affects them, then all of a sudden they turn in to those other vipers. And we even see that in all of them in the way that they all claim to love Marta and that she's part of the family, but not one of them actually knows what country she's sure, from. Sure, it keeps changing. And they all get yeah. that wrong. Yeah. One of the jokes of the film, and I think one of the best and most pointed jokes in the film. There is more we could say about Knives Out, probably if we were willing to really get into spoilers, including I would love at some point to dive into the ending of the film. And maybe that's what we'll do with Ryan Johnson here if we get him on the show in the near future is kind of break down some of those choices and specifically how he envisioned that closing scene and what he actually captured on camera. Knives Out is currently playing in wide release. We encourage you to see it if you haven't done so already. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers in here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Tom Hanks as Mr. Fred Rogers in the trailer for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, directed by Marielle Heller. The film is loosely based on a 1998 profile of Rogers by Tom Juno in Esquire magazine and the relationship that developed between the two men in the film. UK actor Matthew Reese plays a stand-in for Juno named Lloyd Vogel. We're just going to spend a couple minutes on this film, Josh, but we have been fans of Heller's previous work, including last year's Can You Ever Forgive Me, Made My Top Ten of the Year, and Diary of a Teenage Girl. You're going to have to work with me here on this, Josh, because I know it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, but I felt like it made sense that we were talking about this film on the same show we were talking about Little Women, specifically the way Gerwig made some bold choices and adapted her source material. The source material here... I suppose you could point to that Esquire article, but that's not what looms in our consciousness. What looms in our consciousness is Mr. Rogers' show itself. And even more than that, for everyone who had a chance to see it, and I think a lot of people did, the documentary we got just last year from Morgan Neville, Won't You Be My Neighbor? In fact, when we knew this film was coming out, we all kind of posed the question either internally or here on the show, expressed it out loud. What was Tom Hanks and Heller going to do with our perception of Mr. Rogers and what were they going to give us that the documentary didn't give us in terms of its portrait of Fred Rogers? Well, Heller definitely decided on her own 
pretty audacious approach. Did it work for you? Yeah, I want to get to that approach because it absolutely worked. I think it's the saving grace, really, of what's a, a really good movie. Um, but first, to get out of the way, just because I fretted about it at one point when we were talking about this, Tom Hanks as as Fred Rogers and the cognitive dissonance of these these two, you know, childhood heroes in some way of mine. It works. It's fine. I think it helps that Heller throws you into a recreation of a Mr. Rogers Neighborhood episode with the very first frame. Yes. And so you're just you're going to have to go with it or not. And I think Hanks has mostly what he does is he embodies the lightness with which Rogers held the screen, you know, this unhurried manner that Rogers had. And once he has that, everything else works. You know, the cadences and the vocal register might be a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And obviously there are physical differences, but but I think he gets that essential nature correct. And so it did work for me to my relief. But yeah, Heller's choices, there are some surreal touches here that were great. Yes. I mean, anyone who watched the original show remembers the miniature cars and cityscapes that we would see the neighborhood, the miniature of the neighborhood itself. She takes that and not only recreates that, but expands it so that transition points within the movie give us miniature recreations of, I think it's New York City at one point or another neighborhood that appears. And it's not only just an interesting aesthetic touch, but I think it also, it reminds us the world isn't as big or as scary as we think. As long as you have someone who kind of shares your fears with you Mm -hmm. the way Fred Rogers did. And so it's, again, this nice little aesthetic touch that also captures the theme. We could get into the wonderful scene where Fred Rogers asks Lloyd while they're at lunch to just pause and be silent for Mm -hmm. a full minute, I think it is, and think about all the people who have loved him. And suddenly... The camera notices that everyone else in the restaurant is doing the same thing. Right. Hanks Rogers looks into the camera. He looks into the camera. And essentially asks us to do the same thing. Yes. I mean, that's not surreal as much as it is just fourth wall breaking, but it's bold. And I think every choice like that works. It's really bold. It's really effective. And you're right. That scene is, I think, a microcosm ultimately for the entire film because it asks us in that moment as viewers. It doesn't just, it doesn't ask us. Actually, it forces us. Yeah, we sit there. It forces us to confront our own fears. It forces us to confront our awkwardness, our discomfort. Everyone else in the restaurant knows it's Mr. Rogers. They're caught up a little bit in what he is suggesting. They're paying attention. But everyone is sitting there in that same discomfort. But discomfort that hopefully leads to some kind of transcendence. And the choice, which I could easily see not working, or I could see some people deciding that they didn't feel like it worked, but that choice to, from the beginning, actually put us inside an episode of Mr. Rogers to make the Lloyd character be a character in Mr. Rogers' universe. Yeah, that's where it gets really weird. He gets shrunken to the size of a puppet, right? Right, which actually, I got to say, it's funny you bring that up because I had forgotten about it in my hastily scribbled notes here, but that was the one sequence in the film that didn't really work for me. The one where the surreality became, I suppose, even a little too literal. It's a dream sequence, It's a dream sequence where you understand that The toll of writing this story, the effect that Mr. Rogers is having on him and the way it overlaps with his life in some ways that are painful. Yes, it makes sense that he'd confront those. And then when he has a dream where he is now envisioning himself in an episode, that just felt, I suppose, a little bit too obvious to me. But from the beginning, that idea that Mr. Rogers is introducing us to this character named Lloyd and he comes back into play as a character named Lloyd, that makes so much sense because I feel like 
what Heller is ultimately doing is she recognizes that what people did via Mr. Rogers when they watched his show, even if they weren't totally aware of it at the time as kids, is the same thing she wants us to do now and the same thing we need to do now, no matter how old we are or how cynical we are, which is to heal. It's to heal. Like the idea that we can sit in a theater just like you could sit in front of your television and Mm -hmm. actually go through an experience with Mr. Rogers, Mm -hmm. that he is going to force you to think about bad feelings that you have, negative feelings that you have, but also reinforce that with positivity and yeah. have you have you come through it but not but not deny the pain. Well that's just it. Sometimes it's not, it's about not even to heal either. It's it's just to be given the attention. That's and it. to be heard. That's it. Yeah. I agree. And I think the movie is, as I said, literally almost an episode of Mr. Rogers, the way the character is woven into it. But it's also an episode of Mr. Rogers because we as viewers are doing the same thing anyone ever did watching Mr. Rogers. And the fact that Heller pulled that off, I think is remarkable. So you mentioned the one scene that maybe didn't quite work for you. If there's one element that I did wonder about, and it came to mind as you were talking about the healing aspect of it. And I do feel like, you know, watching Mr. Rogers was never like having a magic wand waved over you, even though Mm -hmm. you you could experience the feeling of healing. There's a little bit of a magic wand going on in the relationship with Lloyd and his father within the narrative of the film, played by Chris Cooper, uh, who's very good in the role. And I think, you know, I guess the story feels like it almost needs... This is a deeply hurtful relationship, Mm -hmm. we, we understand. And maybe... It resolves that a little too neatly. Or maybe it doesn't – maybe this is the issue for me is maybe it doesn't fully recognize the pain that Lloyd's father caused in the way that they do come around together, just the way the narrative brings them together. (sighs) Lloyd is so resistant throughout the film, and that resistance clearly comes from that well of pain. Yes, exactly. He is is so unwilling to give in. You get the feeling it would have taken more is is watching this. And and so and the only reason I bring that up is I could see some people saying, oh, this is just, you know, a touchy feely, you know, basically if you've got a stone heart, don't bother with this thing. But I think it does dance around and evade that trap 90% of the Mm -hmm. time, maybe just not in that little portion of it. Yeah. Overall, I was really surprised by how powerful I thought that relationship and dynamic was. And I suppose I, I wanted to see that healing, Sure, you know, so it, it did work for me. And while we're talking about the way Heller kind of gets at what was so fundamental about Mr. Rogers and his show in this film, I think that it's so clear through some of those techniques she uses, some moments where the character, where Rogers, sometimes even Lloyd, look directly at us, where mm-hmm. the camera kind of makes us part of this as well. She makes the movie less about Mr. Rogers than it is about us. And I don't know that a lot of filmmakers come at their filmmaking from that perspective, where they're consistently consciously aware of the impact of what they're filming is having on the people watching it. And I think that this movie has that in every single frame. And how appropriate is that since Mr. Rogers was never thinking about himself? He was always thinking about the person he was talking to. He was always thinking about the person who was watching on the other side of the camera. It was never about his vanity. And so it is just to me so perfectly ideal that this movie in its own way too isn't really about Mr. Rogers. It's about Mr. Rogers as a conduit to... To something else. And in some cases, that something else is healing. Yeah, it's definitely 
an incredibly unique experience going to watch this movie than than the documentary on him or, or any other biopics mm-hmm. for sure. It's, yes. it's its own thing. Which, who needs to see that, right? Go for it. And I think we also should single out here before we go the cinematography, Jody Lee Lipes, who's a DP that we have praised a few times on the show, including, I'm pretty sure, shot Can You Ever Forgive Me? And there's a closing few minutes of this film. There's a closing shot of this film that is so powerful and elegant in its grace and just the way color is used and camera movement in really giving us a full picture of Fred Rogers in really what's just a minute or so of actual screen time. And I'll tell you as well, Josh, and I think this is expressed in the filmmaking, I was surprised and happy to see how, while obviously it's overall a glowing portrait, I think of Mr. Rogers, there's nothing in it that's going to to ruin our childhoods. And one character even says that in Mm -hmm. the film. Lloyd's wife says, don't ruin Mr. Rogers for me, I think acknowledging what everybody in the theater is thinking. But when they have some of their conversations and Lloyd doesn't want to back away or he thinks that Fred is retreating too easily into his world of puppets or whatever he might be doing to try to deflect. Yes. And Lloyd doesn't want to do that. The movie sits in those uncomfortable spaces too. And one way it does it, and actually K. Austin Collins, a critic, I just saw a tweet from him last night about this. He points out the way close-ups are used in some of their exchanges where they're not comfortable close-ups. Mm-hmm. It's cutting back and forth between them, and you really do feel that tension. You get some caginess from Fred Rogers. You get oh, some sure. evasiveness from him in those scenes. Well, to balance what I was saying about you know the relationship between Lloyd and his father maybe being too neat, I was so refreshed how it complicates Fred Rogers as someone who has his own issues yes. without laying those out. And it's when Lloyd asks him, do you ever talk to anyone about the burden you carry? And if you remember... Roger's response, he he kind of, he looks a little angry mm-hmm. and he's, I think he's sitting at the piano at that time and he just kind of slams down his yeah. hands on the piano, making an, you know, a loud, angry noise. And it's kind of a joke, but it's also makes you realize that maybe the way he's carried himself is an unhealthy approach to distance himself from his own issues. You know, if I'm always, if I'm always fixing everybody else, I don't have to fix myself. And the movie doesn't spend a lot of time on that, but I think just hinting at it gives us a sense of that complication that it really needs. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is out in wide release, and that concludes our love fest here on this episode of Film Spot. This is usually, at least it's supposed to be, the best time of year when we're getting some of these prestige releases, if you will. Sometimes that's a pejorative word. It's not when you're talking about films as well-crafted as Little Women and Knives Out and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. If you have thoughts about any of those movies or other thoughts about this show, email us anytime. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And if you want to hear even more reviews, head over to the show archives. We've got reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005 over at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking you, what is the best film of 2019? Our choices are Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. To order film spotting t-shirts or other film spotting merch, you can visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. We are on Twitter and Facebook. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in wide release this weekend, a movie I had never heard of until I saw these words in my notes in front of me. Playmobil, the movie. No, that this is one that I don't 
believe exists. I think uh, Sam's playing a joke on us. He might be. Now, it has a review here from Letterboxd, a reviewer named Paul Simply. I don't know if Sam follows him or not, but it says, remember before 2014 when you thought the Lego movie would suck? This is the movie you thought it would be. Yikes. In limited release, opening here in Chicago, The Aeronauts, a period drama about hot air balloon enthusiasts with Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones, directed by Tom Harper, who also directed one of my Brick nominees for this year, Wild Rose. And then, Josh, three other movies that I feel like are pretty hotly anticipated by us. Certainly two of them. Those two are Portrait of a Lady on Fire, directed by Celine Sciamma, getting a ton of acclaim this year, Varda by Agnes. You know we are huge fans of Agnes Varda here on the show. This her final film and a film that I have started watching, Josh. And it's a movie you could watch in parts. It really is because it's a retrospective on her career and filmmaking and art in general led by Agnes Varda. It's like the best film school you could ever want, basically. I look forward to finishing that movie. One movie I did finish is The Two Popes. Anthony Hopkins stars in that. Jonathan Price. so I'm going to say it now, is going to get an Oscar nomination for playing Pope Francis. Okay. Anthony Hopkins plays Pope Benedict. I think they're both very good in the film. I think Jonathan Price is deserving, potentially, of that Oscar nomination. And maybe we'll get to a few thoughts on it next week, but I'll say right now, I recommend it. If you have a chance to see The Two Popes, it is out in select cities right now. Next week on the show, we are going to wrap up our 9 from 99 series with The Phantom Menace. Speaking of prestige pictures. Oh, man. And we'll get to our nine from 99 awards. We are going to look back on our favorite moments and performances from the nine films in our series. And we may end up making some time for some of these films like The Two Popes, Varda by Agnes and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Heim. You can find more information at HeimTheBand.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. That and more. Hello, neighbor. Ahead on Film Spotting. That was that was creepier than how do it I make it not friendly? Creepy? I don't know. How does Mister Rogers? Hello. No. Hello, neighbor. Hello, little, neighbor. That's better. That's I better. really cannot obviously do an impression of him. No, just don't be creepy. Okay, let's do one more. Tom Hanks in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. That and more. Hello, neighbor. Ahead on film spotting. I think that was better. Did I make him a woman? <laughs> like <laughs> kind, I always do? Kind of. Yeah, I did. Okay. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.